Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. I'm Yash, your host for the New Books Network. Today, we will talk to Dr. Moyuk Chatterjee about his new book, Composing Violence, The Limits of Exposure and the Making of Minorities, which was published by Duke University Press in 2023. Thank you so much, Moyuk, for joining me today for this conversation. So starting with the first question, could you introduce yourself to the audience, please? Thank you, Yash, for having me. And um, so I am Moyuk Chatterjee. I'm a political and legal anthropologist and a visiting scholar in the Department of Social Anthropology in the University of Edinburgh. And in August, I'll be joining here as a lecturer in the same department. Thank you. Now, uh, let's discuss the book and how did you come to work on political violence in this book specifically? Uh, So thanks, Yash. So um, the question of political violence, let me just begin with that and then I'll get to the specific subject of the book, which is anti-Muslim violence in, in Gujarat in the aftermath of 2002. So I grew up in Delhi and, um, you know, I had, I I did my schooling in Delhi. I had heard of what are called communal riots and violence. And uh, especially my parents told me about the anti-Sikh violence in 1984. So, and we read about, you know, the demolition of the Babri mosque and secularism. Going back all the way to partition. So political violence was always there, like, in the textbook, in conversations. And um, I encountered it in in conversations and discussions with my classmates in the school. You know, there would be discussions about, oh, do we appease minorities in India? Is secularism, you know, uh, failing? Is secularism not good? Or people would be very fiercely, like, in support of secularism. And... So the question of political violence in that sense was part of I was of of my growing up. But the specific subject of the book, which is, you know, in in Western India and Gujarat and um, the the pogroms against Muslims, that came up because in two thousand two I was an undergraduate. I was studying English literature in Delhi University, and you know I saw the images of the violence. I I saw it on TV. I I spoke about, I mean, I heard about it, I spoke, discussed it, and people who are my age who will who will know when this happened, it was quite a big thing, you know, in in, in uh, those months in 2002. And I, um, my friends at that time, they said that, you know, Jagori, which is a feminist NGO in Delhi, they were going, uh, they were taking volunteers. So people like me, I was a student, but, you know, you could be a teacher, you could be Anybody from anywhere in India, you could be a lawyer, paralegal, and they would take you, they would help you find a, find your base and find your feet in Ahmedabad, and then you could work as a relief volunteer. So that's what that, that's the first time I went to Gujarat in, in, in the months after the violence. And since then, I've been going back as first as a relief volunteer, then to collect stories, and then finally as an anthropologist. So it's a long answer to a short question. So- no, thank you for that. That's really helpful. And like, it really speaks to so much of my own interest in the subject that I study, which is also part of it relates to political violence because of my own coming, almost coming of age in this current period, in the current political climate in India and seeing some of the 
that I've seen in university spaces. So a lot of what you're talking about speaks a lot to like what I've also seen and what's animated my own work. So thank you for that. Uh, now going into the book, uh, the subtitle of the book is "The Limits of Exposure and the Making of Minorities." Could you speak a little about what you mean by that, and how does exposure contrast with composition with respect to violence in your work? Yeah, yeah. As, I mean, as you said, you know that you, in your own work that you have also come to it not simply intellectually. Of course, it's an intellectual object, right? Violence, and it's a long history in so many disciplines. I'm an anthropologist. I, I imagine you're a political scientist. So we have like lots of literature and, and debates. But the, as you mentioned, it 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 is it is the it's kind of personal. It's also atmosphere in the atmosphere in which you. So for you, it might have been the rise of Hindu supremacy and you know the violence against students. For people like of my generation, it was Gujarat, 2002. People of perhaps earlier generations, it was 1984, Delhi. You know. So these are these events which actually shape an entire generation of, of, of students, academics, of a public, which then thinks about this. What do we do? So, so, so your question about the, 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 the subtitle, the limits of exposure and the making of minorities. So the limits of exposure is basically what do we do now? It is precisely the question I asked after Gujarat. So all I mean by that is that it, to my mind, when I read the literature on violence and not just just uh, anthropological literature, but political science and various other fields, the, the dominant idea, or uh, let me say that the basic assumption is that violence is a hidden object across context. And what our response should be is to unveil it, to document it, to reveal it, right? Now, as you perhaps know about, since you've read the book, but people who have who who know what is happening in India now, or have been tracking what has been happening in India since 2002, so the rise of Hindu nationalism, the rise of Hindu supremacy in India, there's nothing secret about that. There's nothing hidden about it. So Gujarat. 2002, when I went there, as I told you, and I think went in April, May 2002, right after the violence, everybody I spoke to, sort of, when I mean everybody, I mean, you know, members of the Hindu public in terms of shopkeepers, school teachers, auto drivers, very open about the violence, the pleasures that they 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 thought it was it was that that Muslims deserved it, that it was such a great thing that happened, and in that context, I think at that moment Gujarat was considered you know an exception. It was considered an aberration, as if Gujarat was in some other planet and the rest of India was somewhere else. But now we know, right, from where we are, that Gujarat was actually, um, as one can say, the the future almost, right? A, a sign of things to come. So exp- the limits of exposure is precisely the, uh, the idea that what do we do? What kind of scholarly work can we do? What kind of activist work can we do? What approaches to violence we can have when violence is not hidden? And the making of minorities is, is I guess, the part of, is, is, the, is the second part, which is my argument, which is that this kind of violence, uh, public, state-sanctioned, even spectacular violence against minorities is not only not the breakdown of law and order within democracies like India. It is, in fact, the it a, a catalyst to the making of a new kind of society and a new kind of majority and minority. Thank you for that. Uh, could you also speak a little then about co- what, do you, what do you mean by com- composing violence or the composition of violence in this framework? Right. So composition, what I call composition is actually my response to the limits of exposure. So, you know, when I was writing the book at, at some point, I, it, I thought, OK, so I found this is my finding, that you know, the, the analytics of exposure. So invisibility, erasure, silencing, this language that we have used for so long to understand violence, to write about violence is insufficient. But when I was talking to my, you know, when I was in, talking to my editor and I, and I, of course, as a scholar myself, I thought it would not be it would not be enough to stop there. It's not enough to show that this exposure doesn't work. Where do we go from there? What do we do? So for me, composition is actually both 
uh, a method, but also what the what kind of violence we are uh, that I'm describing in the book. So what I mean by composition is that instead of looking or instead of assuming that violence is the breakdown of law and order, is the breakdown of society and relationships in within democracies. Composition is the, is an approach that shows how violence produces new forms of subjects, new kinds of relationships. So how does, for instance, in India, anti-Muslim violence, anti-Muslim language, anti-Muslim news, anti-Muslim memes, WhatsApp forwards, whatever you want to call it, actually bring together new kinds of publics, glue people who suddenly, you know, for instance, the, the idea of the Hindu, how do, how, do, how do people across Calcutta, Ahmedabad, you know, Kerala, people who don't know each other, who don't eat the same food, may not even speak the same language, how does anti-Muslim sentiment and hatred glue them together, bring them together, you know, on, on, on this platform of being, you know, uh, wounded Hindus who are now getting their place in the sun? So, so composition is in that sense, the, that quality of violence, that the productive transformational quality of violence. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. And, I, and you spoke to some of the ways in which composition is also a methodology. So throughout the book, you discuss like the various ways in which the police and the judiciary aid what you call the permanent making of majorities and minorities. Could you discuss some of those here? Because I thought that was one of the richest aspects of the work was also the unique methodology, some of the sources like the FIRs that you uh, refer to in your work. So do you could you discuss that a bit here? Yeah. So if indeed, you know, uh, violence composes, then the question is, when we arrive at these scenes of violence, this is what I have done, is I didn't, I, I did not, you know, and perhaps I could not um, treat it as something that is hidden and I have to now kind of probe it, but I examined all the places where it was being discussed, debated, inscribed, um, dismissed. So for instance, how do the police write first information reports, right? Now, the question is not, or not the question, but it is well known that the police are biased, right? Not just anti-Muslim violence, anti-Dalit violence, and uh, sexual violence against women. They will not report the truth. They do not. They manipulate. They try to um, make sure that victims don't get justice, right? We know this already. But I was surprised to find in the police reports that, you know, every police report would add a couple of sentences like a paratext or preface, which would be, you know, like the because of the uh, attack on the train in Godhra, there was a, you know, uh, eruption of Hindu anger, Hindu, you know, violence. And what we get then in this in these police reports is not simply the erasure of violence against Muslims. Of course, the police don't record 99% of the time, the house is burned, the, the people who are, you know, responsible for it. Yes, that is there. But what they are able to do is produce the violence, produce the pogrom as a natural outburst, as, as people's anger, right? So what we see in these police reports is not simply the erasure and dismiss, dismissal of violence, but the making of a people, the making of... So the, the police will write, Muslim mobs came from here and they use words that hurt the Hindu community. This, this hurt Hindu community is at the center of, of Indian politics, right? Is at the center of how Gujarat has, has, has worked since 2002. So, so that's just one example. But I, another example could be from the courts. So in the trials, again, you know, we know from, from, from scholars who work on rape trials, I'm thinking of Pratiksha Bakshi's work, um, trials, you know, um, uh, people who work on caste violence, right? That most of the cases are often dismissed for lack of evidence, contradiction. You know. But what we have in the trials in Gujarat is not simply that the witness comes and he says his thing and the judge says, no, sorry, we don't, I don't believe you. The trial that from, from the time the, 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 the Muslim survivors have gone to the police station, every step of the, their journey, the law was turned against them. So by the end of it, it is the Muslims who are the accusers, the Muslims who are the accused, sorry, whom the Muslims become um, malicious, 
and sectarian subjects. So for instance, the defense says that maybe you are giving testimony because of pressure from the Muslim community. Uh, why did you answer your questions in Hindi and not Gujarati? So, so subtle ways in which tech legal procedures, police writing, um, produce you know, the, the Muslims as, as outsiders, as permanent outsiders. So, th- so that, that process can be tracked through police records, through legal trials, through reading newspaper reports, through talking to people, to looking at how public signs on the streets are you know, transformed. So this is a process that is it, 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 as if it is the infrastructure. You, know, it would, you can see this is the infrastructure of, of minoritization. Absolutely. Thank you for that. Yeah. And I was thinking of, I mean, a lot of Thomas Bloom Hansen's earlier work, but also his recent work, The Law of Force, where he, again, he talks about this, about how the invocation of Section 144, about how local political leaders almost use it as a form of pride that they're disrupting uh, and creating ruckus, in part because they know most cases are never going to be prosecuted. This whole idea of this unidentified mob, which you also speak to, that in cases of violence against Hindus, the people are identified by name so that they could be prosecuted. Whereas when it comes to Muslims facing violence, it becomes an unidentified mob. Even Muslims who can identify them are questioned through the law. I, and I'm particularly thinking of one of the cases that you discuss. And I and I could not think of Bilkis Bano's case and the fact that remission has been given to the people who had been convicted of the violence. So could you speak to the case about of sexual assault and uh, violence that you discuss in the book, wherein the women is consistently questioned and her her knowledge of her own violence is delegitimized by the court and the legal infrastructure. Yeah, so, you know, as I mentioned, I mean, I'm thinking here of Pratiksha Bakshi's work on rape trials in Gujarat also, as it happens, her fieldwork was also in Gujarat. I think the book is called The Public Secrets of Law or something. I don't remember correctly. I mean, the exact title. And and Pratiksha has shown very clearly how this kind of what she calls the public secret of, you know, the sexual violence against women is constructed in the courts as a public secret. Everybody knows, you know, and, and it's still kind of like, I think she takes the idea of public secrets from Tosig, which is a, which is that's what you know everybody knows not to know. I think that's the idea of the public secret. Um, yes, to, to so to your question about justice and 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 sexual violence. So the case I look at is exactly as you said the the focus on sexual violence as rape, you know, in the courtroom. Both, even even survivor, even activists who want to help um, survivors, their understanding of sexual violence as this kind of one single identifiable event that happened is does not square with the experience of you know survivors who experience sexual violence not only during the program but literally at every stage of the trial itself. So the police, for instance, would abuse them. The mob had inscribed. Uh, abusive things on the walls of the houses, the their neighbors continue to kind of like you know expose themselves in front of their house. So so this kind of the the sexual violence aspect of it, as in the uh, is not kind of you know peripheral to this form of violence or to the kinds of pleasures of this violence. Even it is actually central to the idea of of kind of minoritization of Muslims. So I I try to give a sense. And and as you said about Bil- Bilkis Bano case, but I think there are many cases now that have come up like that, and we see you know this really um, disturbing sight that when these um, you know accused are even convicted are released, they are kind of celebrated as public heroes by their community. You know, garlands and, and sweets. Um, politicians have gone, I mean, that's the political aspect of it, because they are, you know, public heroes, their legitimacy is increased, you know. So then it does give us, it should give us pause of what it means to go to the law to to kind of address this kind of violence. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And one of the other things apart from the judiciary and the police is also the role of the community. So one of the more influential works in among political scientists and violence, and it uses Gujarat as a case study as well, is Ashutosh Vashne's work, Ethnic Life. And his argument is more about how in, uh, inter-ethnic groups and networks and the existence of those can be seen as an indicator of ethnic peace, whereas I saw a lot of it in your work as the opposite effect, wherein the existence of ethnic networks or ties through 
business relations, etc., can also be used in a coercive manner to ensure that individuals do not pursue justice, etc. So could you speak to a role about how uh, networks or the role of the community in making sure that Muslims could not access justice or also their role specifically within the program as well? Yeah, that's a very important question, Yash. And of course, you know, um, um, Ashutosh Vashni's book, you know, I, I mean, I've learned a lot from it. And it's um, I, and this was one of the books that came out, you know, when I was, a, you know, when I was starting this research. And the role of the community is really, really important here, as you mentioned, because um, the law, of course, you know, looks at this kind of violence through the through the lens of victim versus perpetrator. And as and, I, and and at this, I mean, when I'm saying this, I have in mind, you know, Mahmoud Mamdani's work on, on political violence, and, and especially his his most recent book. That, but what do we do when the communities we are working with or we are studying live beside each other? And they don't have a choice, right? I mean, if you're well off, you can leave the place where you're where you're living, but most. Muslims don't have, most poor Muslims, just like most poor Hindus in Gujarat, don't have the choice of just leaving where they live so, and work. So they must go on to live with and work with these. And I think those pressures did make the legal process untenable. Because once you, you, you have, you're a, for instance, I have examples in the book of a Muslim shopkeeper, grocery guy, you know, sells milk and things like that. And he does, he has customers who are Hindus, who are, you know, who may even have come and participate in the burning of his shop. But now they are coming and buying stuff from him. Now they are walking past his shop. He can see them. So they, he would tell me, those boys, the boys who came and burnt my shop, I've seen them, I see them every day, they pass my house. So I think at this moment, what at that, at that moment, I think at least for my impulse, would be to stop and think and ask that person what justice means for them. What do they want? You know, the, the cases were filed in 2002. The trial is coming up in 2011, 2013. I mean, what is, I mean, this is people's entire, you know, decade has gone by. They're doing new things. There are new relationships, marriages, deaths, births. So many things have happened. So, so, so in this, the law, unfortunately, the way the legal trials work in India, and we know for all trials, this is not something about only Gujarat. All legal trials have this temporality built into it. So then activists, people who are concerned about this violence must consider this, right? And and be cognizant of this. So so I think that's that's these are some of the limits of of, of the legal structure and, and of the limits of turning to the law. Yeah, thank you. Uh... Moving on, in your chapter, a minor reading, you discuss a case involving a local hoodlum dhoni and how that relates to your broader argument about composition and violence. Could you discuss that a bit? Yes. So a minor reading is, a, you know, it's a chapter about newspaper articles. And, and I, it was basically when I was doing field work in, in Ahmedabad and, you know, there was a so-called communal riot I, I saw in on news in the newspapers in the you know Gujarat Samachar and all the Gujarati newspapers, my informants and people I was with were like, yeah, there is this thing in you know in this neighborhood. So I I was quite intrigued and I I went there and I as it happened I was also doing field work, you know in in the same neighborhood and I knew people and I so I went with one of some of my friends, but what I discovered was that as I as I started. Now, you know, asking about the violence, the, the, the narrative that was that the people were telling me was very, very different from the narrative in the newspaper. Now, this is nothing new. We know, of course, that newspapers, you know, that can of, of misrepresent. And as you know, right now, the media ecology in India, and you know, what kinds of news, what is considered news is, of course, framed by through, you know, corporate interest, through all kinds of, um, you know, advertising but the the remarkable part of what I call minor reading is that this is this there is a certain template to what has been called communal violence, and you know I'm I'm not the first person to say this. I'm thinking of Gyan Pandey's work, you know, uh, I think it's called Construction of Communalism in Northern India, a classic book, 1990. But so Gyan, as Pandey has shown, that there is a plot. There are characters like a play like a morality play that the violence moves alongside so this idea that there is a minor 
incident kite flying in uh, you bump into somebody a accident on a road and that lead to this huge communal riot right and this was the story here also the one that i examined but what i want to what i have argued in the book is that what is considered minor whether it's the characters whether it's the incident whether it is the 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 sequencing of the violence actually when you try to unpack it has the potential to unravel the whole story itself because then as I, as you mentioned what was supposed to be a hindu muslim riot is actually 15 or 20 guys with another man who's a well known hoodlum who's a bootlegger in in uh, this neighborhood amdavad and because he's a bootlegger he has very good relationships with the police because in amdavad is a dry state well known to everybody well known to the uh, local politicians as well he is he takes revenge in with some of his um gang members or some of the local boys and burns shops and and kind of does he's then then there are like boys from the muslim neighborhood who throw stones at him and this incident is becomes a communal riot right so that this for for this incident to become a communal riot a whole range of things have to happen some of them involve how the new the reporters write it but i found that what was the key element was that the the newspaper report is literally a replica of the police first information report and it is through this idea that you know then you have a larger public in india which believes that anything between hindus and muslims can lead to violence right they are forever at each other's throat so of course right it naturalizes the idea that anything between a hindu man and a muslim man a hindu woman and a muslim boy anything can lead to violence so what i call a minor reading is just the kind of a method to read these scenes i don't know about you but i'm very busy and i don't have a lot of time to cook that's why i subscribe to factor eating better is easy with factor's delicious ready to eat meals every fresh never frozen meal is chef crafted dietitian approved and ready to go in just 2 minutes you'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week including calorie smart protein plus and keto these are 2 minute meals Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com/nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com. Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off. Yeah, thank you. And again, when I was reading that, I again could not help but think of the current moment and some of what's happening. And where I think, uh, to some degree, is the op- not the opposite effect, but a complementary effect. Wherein, if this sense of like naturalizing of differences has happened, that almost and more particularly vigilante outfits are using almost the pretext of communal violence or are deliberately. using the idea of communal violence to settle more business relations issues of political economy so we saw in muzaffarnagar there were tensions between jats and muslims over participation in farming etc we are seeing a lot of targeting of muslim businesses in uttar pradesh around slaughters etc and what and what your work speaks to me then is how at least in the example that you're talking about it's the media that's constructing communalism almost in this incident whereas what i'm talking about now is that given this construction of communalism has associated impunity for a lot of these groups then they see that as an easier way to settle business scores or other personal enmity through communalism we saw that in the violence that happened in northeast delhi as well which i again i was in delhi at that time so that's again relates to your earlier argument about how you come to the work but there again also you saw businesses being targeted in particular as a way wherein communalism almost becomes a pretext for those relations so that was really helpful Yeah I mean you know what you said reminds me of when I was doing so part of the field work that I was doing then and this is it got interrupted because of covid was that I've been working with you know bajang dal boys I've been spending time with them and they told me their modus operandi they, they told me very openly that you know we they don't they were trying to resist the coming in of a a muslim um basically a house Uh, they, a, a man was trying to buy a muslim man was trying to buy property near 
there wherever they live and they didn't want that to happen so like exactly like what you said so they but there's no way to make it not happen right legally there is no way anybody can buy a house anywhere even though gujarat has the distressed areas act and they have their their they their gujarat has one another layer of making sure that you know there's segregation but the in this case the there there was a way and the 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 house was sold so what the bajang the uh, leader told me and he said that you know we gathered as you said the community we got neighbors we started creating ruckus and then i started calling the police saying if you don't come here there'll be a riot there's going to be a communal riot here so you know you come and solve this so it's actually exactly the way you're saying it that this gives lot of uh, actors non state actors a pretext to you know to do many things this is about land of course and and property here yeah and again it's it's almost eerie how much of that script plays out in all these incidents like in gujarat there was uh, in gurgaon sorry where i'm from there was an issue around namaz at a public place which had gone on for decades and suddenly a bunch of hindu groups etc realized that muslims offering namaz in a public place in gurgaon is unacceptable to them so they used the same pretext where in first they would create tensions and then they would go to the police and they would make sure they have pictures with this they would issue a memorandum almost to the police that in either you make sure that this does not happen on the friday that it's supposed to happen or again there'll be violence there'll be riots and you're going to be responsible for it and again like again not to harp on on it but like in my personal experience also like one of the things that happened when i was in undergraduate was in ramjas college when umar khalid was invited to speak and suddenly the abbp and it had been approved by the administration but suddenly the abbp and other student groups started opposing in that moment where he was supposed to come and suddenly the police said that uh, either you rescind the invitation or what happens afterwards is not on us like you can't blame us if there's a riot that breaks out or there's more violence than breaks out because you're doing something that we do not approve of even though you've had prior permissions about this earlier so it's just like almost jarring to see how the same script plays out and how the police and the administration consistently sides with these groups and almost encourages this form of violence particularly in the current period mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, and that, and that uh, almost brings me to my other que- the question about contemporary India and the period of anti-minority violence and the normalization of almost a militant public sphere. So, how do you see your work engaging with the current moment in India, particularly, but also beyond? Because I think there's also relevance for this kind of work for a lot of what we're seeing in other countries like Brazil, Philippines, where we had state-sanctioned vigilantism against drug traffickers. uh united states of america where we are seeing again a great in- intensive rise in vigilante violence which has always existed so how do you see your work relating to both the current moment in india but also beyond yeah thanks yeah so i think this is actually related so one thing i would say is that the current moment in india is actually in some ways not so peculiar to india in in many ways and like you mentioned you know brazil um but what comes to my mind and when i say the current moment i mean uh the power of um public um state sanctioned anti minority politics to kind of become a state making a people making project right because so it's from from being thought of as the breakdown of law and order as a you know riot pogrom blah blah i mean not even a pogroms because there's literature on on pogroms and the very important role of pogroms in the making of nation states in europe but what i mean is that from the idea that this kind of thing is aberrational or minor or kind of like you know on the on the margins you know what what in india is called like you know the fringe right fringe what was considered to be the fringe to now what is mainstream so what what so the question we have to we have to ask ourselves is what do we do what kind of scholarship can we do when what we used to call the fringe is now the mainstream so israel comes to mind you know instantly for instance so i think in that sense i i i i feel that what i what i would suggest and what i have tried to do but not so much in this book but maybe going forward is really you know that the idea that what we had in india was communalism was actually an impediment was an obstacle to our fully understanding what was happening and this is of course the benefit of hindsight because i you know i was i worked with sehmat in delhi and we were always about combating communalism and communalism is an important language in india for some people 
But what it does is it makes this kind of what are called pogroms or anti-Muslim violence, some like peculiar Indian thing, you know. Whereas, as you mentioned, what happens when we look at anti-Muslim violence and anti-black violence, right, together? Or when we know that the, the political formations like the RSS and the Hindu right were inspired by far-right groups in Europe, uniform, rituals, songs, flag, you name it, right? So there, there, are, there, there is this comparative global dimension to these movements, you know. And they, for instance, in the U.S., the language would be racialization or anti-blackness, right? I think that if we put our studies uh, the, and the current moment, as you said, to so what I'm trying to say is that to understand the current moment, we must think comparatively. You know, for future scholars like you, you know, who are now coming into this, I think you you have that advantage. You have that and and you have that um, insight that these are not separate, isolated things, but they are they can be put together and they must be put together. So that is that is the that is the first thing. And I'm also thinking of Sri Lanka, for instance. You know, again, if you think about an ethnic majoritarian state, you know, uh, many similarities. The the, the 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 other point, or I think you mentioned the current moment. I think the current moment is, at least from my perspective. I feel in some ways that it brings us back to the question of Gujarat 2002. Because we never answered the question of Gujarat 2002. What we thought it was, it wasn't, right? So what what was it then? So I think that question of how does violence enter the state becomes at the the heart of the making of a new state and a new people, a new public culture. I think that, that is the question for today. Yeah, thank you. That's really instructive. And one of the ways, and I'm not sure it's a shift entirely in form, but probably in scale that I see. So it's just to some degree about the nature of violence that when we look at it, uh, it's not as if riots or pogroms have gone away, but they've almost been supplemented by this form of routinized everyday violence, which has become more the norm in India today. So when we were discussing COVID and some of the things, Various conspiracy theories popped up like COVID jihad, simply the idea that Muslim fruit vendors or vegetable vendors are deliberately spitting on their fares as a way to infect Hindus. And that was then used as a pretext to make sure that Muslim vendors aren't allowed to access colonies. That's just one example of multiple that we're seeing the bogus conspiracy theory around love jihad, which is today manifested in legislation across multiple states. So as in, and that's coming from this form of routinized everyday violence that, and you've adequately uh, shown how even spectacular incidents of violence where there is clear documented loss of life and property are still not prosecuted upon. Whereas in these instances, even the question of prosecution or police intervention is almost goes out of the window. And for me, in my work, one of the consequences of this, which is where I find some of the existing uh, focus within political science limited, is that it's not just about political behavior, participation, vote shares, etc. It's also about the conditions of democratic being political participation that it means for these individuals what does such a climate and as you said at the start like what does the atmosphere of violence does to democratic being and political participation i think that's particularly important and that's probably a shift in scale to some degree that we're seeing today compared to before maybe yeah absolutely i think i think you're you're absolutely right because as you said it's the I think the way I would understand what comes to my mind is at least that the idea that violence can be the animating force of the of the of a democracy. It can be what animates people. It can be what does not what scares people to go to the polling booth, but encourages them to go to the polling booth. Right? It's not what's what what um, makes them afraid and scared and 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 kind of uh, forces them to look away but what kind of attracts them and uh, yes so I, th- I think I think that that is a, a major shift at least from my from the way I was growing up in India and what I thought of violence and how you know how where we are and to my mind like I what comes to my mind is this um, 
I think this now new scholarship that looks at it, but, you know, the Israeli sociologist Yit Fakel, I'm, I'm forgetting his name, ethnocracy, you know, his concept of what is an ethnocracy in Israel. And he, he, he uses the Israel example. And I think those, those are the kinds of uh, conceptual categories. Um, a m- more, much more relevant than saying breakdown of democracy, end of democracy. You know, so the b- what I was trying to show in the book is just basically that, that the courts didn't stop working, that the police have not stopped filing reports. They could have stopped writing reports, but they did write reports. The trials did go on. The newspapers were printed. So nothing is stopping, nothing is breaking down, you know. We are seeing the transformation and the production of something new. What is this new? What do we call it? That's the million dollar question <laughs> <laughs> yeah thank you for that yeah um, now coming back to the book in and something i wanted to discuss in chapter four you discuss the work of lawyers and advocacy organization which you also mentioned previously working with the victims and you're critical of these groups relying on i quote the same majoritarian state spaces and procedures that reinforce the second class status of muslims and i know this may be a little beyond the scope of your work to some degree but i wondered as i read this about what if any alternative pathways exist for justice? And if the promise of justice through these procedures may be enough despite its limits. And here I'm thinking of like recent work by Rupa Loza, who's worked on her work, Semiotics of Rape. She talks about how incidents wherein there are women who seek compromises in instances of rape as opposed to legal prosecution because, and she talks about how this may be counterintuitive for a lot of people, but the idea that they could exercise agency through compromise versus a legal procedure that almost takes that agency away from them is enough and we need to see it on their terms. So where would you see that in light of some of the arguments that you lay out in this chapter? So I I wasn't aware of of this book, Semiotics of Rape, you mentioned, yeah, and uh, Rupal Ozaz. So I think this is a very, very powerful argument and it would would at least, you know... um, it would be true to my experience of my conversations with survivors and witnesses. And I have not framed it like that, but I think I would literally say the same thing word by word in case in, in the case of Gujarat as well, that what was considered compromise. So, you know, from the perspective of human rights activists, that's like you lose the game because this is out of court compromise, right? You're fighting to put the other person in the dock. Now, instead of doing that, you say, okay, I'll take some land, I'll take some money, we'll do something, whatever, whatever they do in that specific situation. And they leave the legal process, so there is no justice. There's no legal justice. But in Gujarat, in, in Ahmedabad, and in, in, in rural areas also, like uh, Sabarkatha, and, and there were cases where compromises... Um, and I think I mentioned in the book, but I don't remember where that, you know, compromise was a big thing. Many cases started getting compromised. As I had mentioned, you know, this is 10 years after the cases have been filed. And the survivors did exercise some form of agency, some form of control over their situation in whatever way, you know. So I think it, 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 that, that, would, that, that would definitely be true for, for the case of, um, in the case of, you know, intimate violence or political violence that involves people who are, you know, live next to each other. Um, and beyond the question of law, I think the, you know, it's this is tricky because, uh, of course, you don't want to say, oh, the law doesn't work. The law does not give us, you know, some perfect thing that we'll give up because there is no perfect thing, right? Everybody is working with the the tools that we have. And we are now speaking with the benefit of hindsight, right? I'm writing the book with the benefit of hindsight. We don't have that when we are in Gujarat in 2002. So this definitely, I don't want to suggest that we gave up on legal justice. But going back to my first point, you know, that the idea of legal justice, if it works only with the with the concept of the binary of victim versus perpetrator, it is it it can what it can do is it can exclude the survivor, it can exclude the survivor's life as it develops. So if so, one way of thinking of it would be that if legal justice is indeed if prosecution is indeed the way to go forward for the communities that we are talking and speaking about, then that should be the fight. But if it is, you know, for instance, 
one I mentioned it in my book perhaps there's one woman Muslim woman who whose shop whose house was burned by her neighbors she saw it but she refused to go to the courts so I asked her why and she said that yes I firstly she said I don't know how to see inside their hearts so I said did they apologize she said no I mean they haven't apologized but what she wanted to say is that she's not going by what they have done or they're saying but she said now I work with them and we are working on common issues of like problems of sewage, electricity connections. And she said, now it would be a betrayal to, to take them to court. So I think what we get here is a situation in which um, what, would just, what would be justice in this situation would be perhaps having a better water connection or electricity, right? Permanent, a better electricity connection. And that has to be defined by the, the survivor, the communities that we work with. So it's just this very simple point that the to come with an idea of justice or to preach to them or to tell them this is what you're going to do. A, it may not happen, as in the case of Gujarat. B, that may not be what they want. Yeah, absolutely. That's really important. Thank you for that. Uh, I mean, I've already taken a lot of your time, but I want to ask you about just your experiences as a researcher writing about political violence, given my own work on the subject. Like I often in the current period struggle with the idea of extractive relationships and re-traumatizing victims for the sake of research that probably will never alter their material lives. So I, I, I was really fascinated reading the cultural anthropology piece you wrote where uh, you talk, I like this one quote that you have there, how to encounter the survivor of violence, but not feast on her experience. And it was particularly jarring for me because I actually have seen the same exhibition that you referred to in the cultural anthropology piece, like at one of the museums. And I was also like stuck in a place almost surrounded by this spectacle of violence of victims and how that, again, like speaks to a lot of what you talk about in the introduction about how this form of violence is foundational and not episodic to state-making, to nation-making, particularly in India. So I just want to know if you have further thoughts on this or advice for researchers and grad students like myself working on these subjects. Yeah, so, you know, it's a very important question, Yash. And um, what comes to my mind are a couple of things. The first thing I would say is that this kind of work takes a toll, you know, um, on the person who's doing it. So I think it's very important to be able to do this work while being mindful of its long-term effects on you. So what I mean is that for whatever reason, you know, I've been thinking about looking at working with um, Gujarat 2002 now. It's been, what, almost, you know, 22 years. So and in whatever capacity. And then you get all kinds, you you have to, you know, you listen to all kinds of stories. There's a lot of um, really distressing um, material in this, so I think I think one has to be able to I don't know what the word is to be able to find a way to make sense of this, process it for oneself, you know. Um, and by, by this I don't mean like you know that I don't know. I mean it's not that you don't do this work or you you leave it when it gets difficult because you know that's not the point. But I think to be able to um, Take care of both yourself and the person and the people who you are working with. You know, find some ways of doing that. I mean, whatever could the, in the in that situation, it may mean many different things. Like it could mean, you know, I don't know, it could be little rituals, like you know, to be also participate in the in the social life. You know, meals together, trips together. Um, you know, you know, event, it, common events like things like that, functions, rituals together. Uh, the other thing would be, you know, to, as I said, to ask a question. I didn't say this, but I mean, what something that I did not, you know, fully pay attention to, but I think I would, I think is really important because people ask me this is what interrupts the violence? So not simply what, how powerful it is, how deep it is, how explicit is explicit it is, how performative or you know infrastructure it is. But what interrupts it? What are the minor, if you want to use the language of the book, but you know you don't have to. But what are the small things, emotions, relationships, political economy, atmosphere? What is it that interrupts this flow? Because we know that if it was total, and I think you know that is very important to give that impression that if it was total, then we would not have a society at all. You would be at the end of, you know, there would be no Muslims in Gujarat, right? They could do that. 
so it is so for every story of you know of violence destruction i think on you one can find and this of course depends on on the situation at least in my experience i could find acts of refuge friendship solidarity intimacy you know so it is how 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 does one in their writing i could not do it but i would like future scholars to do it to bring that also in their work so so that would be one thing and another thing that comes to my mind is actually to think about violence beyond just the academic so as you mentioned yourself um artists poets writers sculptors musicians they also address this question of violence how to speak about it how to talk about it and they have you know they have they have the different tools different mediums and different kind of approach to it and can we learn from those approaches can we bring those approaches in our writing you know is is that possible if yes you know that may mean new experimentation with the form of our work or different ways to present our work so so these are some of the things that come to my mind when you ask that question yeah thank you that's really helpful and it reminded me again of like a recent uh, i don't know if it's recent actually a, another cultural anthropology piece by sandhya fuchs who's talking about working with uh, uh marginalized caste families in rajasthan talking to them about caste violence and she talks about the fact that whatever she did it was impossible almost to break this barrier of the outsider the insider the fact that she was she, even if she knew the language she wasn't she was visibly an outsider and she talks about this instance wherein uh just by chance they get the it there's an opportunity there's an instance where they end up laughing at her because of something that happens and that instantly breaks down the barrier that existed between them because they see her now as another as someone who they can speak to as opposed to someone who's come to almost extract their experiences and trauma for the sake of her own benefit again and she warns that you can't engineer this to it has to be organic of course but a lot of what you refer to right now remind me of that and that's really helpful yeah yeah i know i know sandhya's work and i, I should see this uh, this piece thank you for, for for you know bringing it to my attention so i think that's important laughter is very important you know and it's a it's a form of vulnerability i think it it i don't know if uh, this is something that is useful to other people but you it, this is the kind of work that is long term work also you know it gets it is it is always extractive because of the position that we are in but i think if you do this very short term you know kind of thing you just go and you have a script and you just kind of extract i think that's, that becomes much more extractive rather than being able to kind of do long term work in which there are you know interruptions laughter frustrations it's it, time there's something that that's just as sandhya calls it you were saying like spontaneous or whatever but i would say it's just it's also a question of time thank you it's been a pleasure talking to you and thank you for taking out the time to having this conversation today my pleasure yash thank you so much i learned a lot it was lovely If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com/audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com/audio. That's carshield.com/audio.